Hello and welcome to this World Extreme Medicine podcast in which we will be focusing on safeguarding in humanitarian work. My name is Deb Swan. I'm an advanced clinical practitioner in emergency medicine, a pre-hospital emergency medicine nurse, expedition medic, medic for UK international search and rescue team and member of the WEM faculty. Today I'm joined by Zoe Clift, a physiotherapist who works for Humanity and Inclusion, a charity which works alongside vulnerable and disabled people in areas of poverty, disaster and conflict. She is also the UK Emergency Medical Team Rehab Project Manager and is speaking to us today independently about her knowledge and experience of safeguarding in the humanitarian arena. Zoe, welcome and thank you very much for taking time to speak to us today. Thanks, Deb. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for the opportunity. Fantastic. So firstly, I wanted to um, speak to you or, or, or get you to, to tell us about your career pathway, where it started and how you progress from NHS physiotherapist to um, a global um, emergency physiotherapist. Sure. Um, it's a sort of fortuitous pathway I think probably other people have explained it that way and you'd always like to say it was completely planned and each step was planned out with a five-year plan etc no um, much of it you'll probably hear is uh, by accident or default and and just following opportunities so I qualified as a physio back in or oh, horribly 1998 now which feels like yesterday and about 100 years ago all at the same time it, it was only yesterday i'm sure thank you for that nice little You're uh, welcome <laughs> confidence boost um, <laughs> and yeah i i started as every physio does doing um, rotations to get a broad range of experience and I actually left the UK and went travelling in New Zealand and Australia uh, back in sort of around about 1999, 2000 and um, was really fortunate to have an opportunity to work in Western Australia um, at the time. Um, being able to transfer your skills from the UK to Australia was very different and you basically if you had a qualification in the UK it was transferable um, and I got the opportunity to work in the Kimberley region so the northwest of Australia um, which really it had a like a hub hospital but it was really rural and remote um, working with indigenous populations so aboriginal communities and that was probably my first entry into um, different forms of physiotherapy and working internationally. Um, I I would say, looking back at that now, how much of an impact that would have on my career going forwards. Um, and really working in Aboriginal community and, and really quite remote areas of Australia um, set me up quite well for different aspects of my work going forward. Um, but then I, I came back to the UK and really specialised in burns and plastics physiotherapy, um, so orthoplastics and, and ultimately um, limb reconstruction. Um, so that was in the NHS and then over the next sort of 20 years was really fortunate to work in most of the big regional units in England, um, some, in, some in London, the East Grinstead Queen Victoria Burns unit um, which was really a massive learning experience for me and really developed sort of Burns and orthoplastic experience which was um, really useful for then overseas work um, and I was really fortunate to work with um, at the time different surgeons who were very pro um, working abroad um, and developing burns and plastic skills in low to middle income countries um, and and really that was back in sort of 2004 um, and pretty lucky to work with surgeons who had a foresight and wanted to think beyond surgery um, so they'd been away and worked in burns units and, and said actually what we need to do is think about rehabilitation as well 
and again that was my sort of second entry into international work and I was lucky to work with um, an organisation called Resurge Africa who focus on plastics and reconstructive surgery uh, predominantly in, in West Africa and I worked with a team at um, Korlibu Burns Unit in Ghana um, in Accra um, so I did a bit of that uh, then carried on working with different surgeons and different organisations over periods of time um, and that was with a combination of British Society of Surgery of the Hand and Be First, the reconstructive surgery training programme in places like Bangladesh and Malawi. So it was always a combination of NHS work, taking a bit of leave, so annual leave from the NHS and then going and doing very short burst projects. So, you know, one to two weeks here and there and then coming back carrying on my normal job and vice versa um so that was really the the start for me um basically being lucky to be with people that gave me an opportunity to do different things and work with people in different countries that were familiar with that environment and national staff um who you know you can share your skills with but you learn a huge amount from in the process so that's sort of my NHS start and then my career transitioned really into um, much more humanitarian focus and um, that was via links with the UK emergency medical team um, originally on their roster of NHS staff and then taking my job role at Humanity and Inclusion. Um, for, for people in the UK working in the NHS that they were you know, there is access to some pretty amazing colleagues who are already involved in, in that work. And it's just um, getting to know people, isn't it? And, and talking to people and being interested in what they do. Um, and then, you know, if you, if you have a commonality, you can then use it to, to your advantage and then to the advantage of the people that you're, that you're helping. Um, and I, I, I think um, we've all been there with taking leave um, and uh, doing things in our own time um, to, to, to learn from those experiences and, and, to, and to give, uh, you know, our skills um, uh, to, to other people um, who are also in need. Um, so you've had um, a lot of experience um, in the humanitarian field. Um, and after um, listening to a talk given by you um, for a UK ISAR um, training event um, I realized that actually what I thought I knew about safeguarding um, <laughs> probably wasn't as much as I uh, as much as I thought um, and in the NHS we, we have to do mandatory uh, safeguarding training um, and uh, I didn't realize that safeguarding um, has different um, interpretations and nuances uh, depending on the organization you're working for um, and my particular interest is, is you know, um, safeguarding within the humanitarian field. And I think um, for me in particular, and uh, probably for a lot of people, that you automatically think about the Oxfam scandal, um, but it's, uh, there's a lot more to it than that. So I just wanted to really to, to talk about for, for listeners who, who want to work in the humanitarian sector, um, are perhaps um, about to undertake their first mission, um, or for people who are already working in that sector and perhaps are working for a smaller organisation, um, can you give us a, a, an introduction to, to safeguarding and um, from a humanitarian perspective, what does it mean? Yeah, it's. Um, I'm going to caveat this bit because there are people that work in in the humanitarian sector uh, who are experts in this field. I am definitely not an expert in this field. Um, my background is is rehabilitation, but I think by the nature of working in, in rehabilitation, you tend to spend significant portions of time with the people that you're interacting with and, and by default you end up having some more responsibility and a bit more understanding of, of some of the things that we'll probably talk about um, this evening. Um, 
So, yeah, I'm definitely not a safeguarding and protection expert for the people that do that all day, every day as their speciality role. But I think sometimes um, some of the information you can get from some of the experts, if you're somebody like I was that has a, a full time NHS job or you have another role and you're doing short missions or you're working with smaller organisations, um, sometimes the high level information about safeguarding and protection isn't isn't as accessible for introductory understanding. So I think one of the things that I'd realised as my role changed to work with humanity and inclusion was my understanding of the terms safeguarding in the NHS was not the same as my colleagues working in the humanitarian sector. Um, and that's been fairly consistent and it's one of the things that I end up doing lots of introductory talks about is what do we mean by safeguarding in our normal day-to-day -day lives potentially in the NHS and what does that mean in the humanitarian sector um, and they are slightly different so this is butchering it slightly but for an intro an easy intro the way to think about it um, tends to be in the humanitarian sector. If you think of safeguarding as looking sort of internally facing at your own organisation and your own staff, how they interact with each other, how they interact with um, people that you're going to be working with, be it patients, beneficiaries, etc. And then think of protection as something different there are crossovers but something different in terms of external facing who are the people how does it how are they impacted in their normal day-to-day -day lives what are their vulnerabilities pre-existing or changing um, and how does that relate to them coming into the world that you're working in so I think that's probably the the easiest way of talking about that challenge um, because I certainly know that working in the NHS, safeguarding is sort of a ballpark term for all of those elements that we're talking about. And that's often where where confusion can lie. It's, um, yeah, the, the, the um, yeah, the, I, I think referring to the NHS uh, version of safeguarding, if you will, um, is about protecting citizens health well-being and human rights which that's a lot of things but i think um a lot of people think it's about child protection it's about um perhaps um um vulnerable adults but i think um like you said in, in terms of the humanitarian sector um thinking of it in terms of internal um, you know your organization and then the external effects of what's going on outside of that organization helps to break it up a little um, and I think with you know humanitarian projects there's there's a, a, a power dynamic isn't there there's a, um, a and that can that can be um, a problem it um, you know unfortunately it can, it can attract people that want to take advantage of, of that situation um, particularly if a if an organisation is is recruiting rapidly for a, a disaster or a, a crisis or emergency, um, that can that can make that organisation fragile to being used and manipulated, can't it? Um, yeah, yeah, I I'm think so. I think you know one of the one of the great things that has happened over a period of time is that organisations are very much more robust on that element now. Um, and it's about having those systems and processes in place and being consistent about it um, and having a, a very, very baseline level so that at times of, of surge in recruitment, that process is normal and it happens the same and the checks and balances are there. Um, and again, you know, I'm not I'm not involved in in the actual recruitment side, I'm very much more on the protection side. Um, but I think that is definitely one of the things that a lot of organisations have improved on, 
are continuing to do so and continually reviewing their processes and and also making sure those processes are, are fair and equitable, whether it's, you know, national staff, international staff, volunteers, um, anybody that's interacting with that organisation and then how they are going to interact with the people that they're working to support and, and care for and help. And I suppose for um, for those people who are new to humanitarian work, um, what, what should they be looking for in the organisation that they are choosing to work for in terms of safeguarding processes? What, what looks like a, a good safeguarding and protection strategy? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. Um, I think from a, I think from a safeguarding and protection side of things, again, if you, if you split it out, you've got to look at how those organisations are looking after their own staff um how the recruitment process happens how clear the information is about what their culture is as an organization what their objectives are and what their strategies are and how they how they look to go about achieving those and that includes how they look after their own staff what support there is um what processes there are to um helping you be in your best position to fulfill those objectives and be comfortable doing so so it's about information sharing as well as the usual checks and balances of codes of conduct and um, screening all of those sorts of things um, and, and that goes from everything from looking at you know work patterns um, it healthcare and health checks and vaccinations all the way through on a spectrum to things about um, debriefing and mental health and well-being and support both pre-deployment during your mission or your trip and then what are the processes in place for after um, looking at things like their complaint systems and their whistleblowing strategies all of those things should be pretty visible um, and I think sometimes that's easier to do if you're going to do, if you're taking on a permanent job with a humanitarian organisation or you're going to do a longer term project, be it six months, 12 months beyond that, compared to uh, people that might be doing really short things, you know, two weeks, three weeks, that that sort of thing. Um and and it's and it should be and can be just as important that's really interesting actually thinking about the even just like the the hr perspective of 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 uh, of an organization and how they treat their staff and um work patterns um and debriefing and support for staff because i think if you have staff that aren't looking after each other then you've potentially got staff who aren't really going to be looking after the people that they're going to to help if that makes sense um and in terms of um so kind of rapid recruitments and um and and short deployments i suppose if an organization has a high turnover of staff or inexperienced staff working for them that opens up the the risk of um safeguarding issues there as well yeah i mean again i think it's i think it's getting balanced isn't it i think it's like any team that you're building you know i suppose your ideal mix is not everybody who's you know been in the organization years and years and years you want you want a mix of new to the organization sort of mid-term longer term people so you so you get that that balance right and everybody can bring different skills but yeah you know high turnover um very short term high turnover it would make you look at things slightly differently and there may well be very good reasons that aren't around safeguarding for that um i think you know there are some 
there are some elements that you'd want to consider in terms of things like burnout and you know they are often stressful environments and it puts people under pressure and people work and react in different ways so I think you know there is that element of safeguarding as you say about looking after your own staff and people putting them in the best position to be able to support each other uh, make good decisions Um, you're not going to get everything right all of the time but you want some of those strategies in place so that if there are issues at a lower level um, they can be highlighted and you know going through that lessons learned process but I think you know again I've had a lot of people um, mention that things have improved but there is definitely still that element of you know how do you support somebody who goes through stressful environments be it the situation they're working in the people they work with um you know that that's one of the things again is improving uh, but still more work to be done and in terms of going overseas um to do humanitarian work um in terms of the the protection side of things so looking kind of external uh, to the organization that you're that you're that you're um, on a, that you've deployed with. Um, what sort of considerations should people have? I know it's country dependent, culture dependent, the context in which you are, you know, you're, you're deployed. Um, but are there any general things to 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 be mindful of? Yeah, this is the area that I'd really want to focus on. Okay, um, let's do it because <laughs> <laughs> I think there's huge huge potential um i think all of those things that you mentioned would tick loads of boxes so yes being aware that different settings different circumstances different populations all come with different protection concerns things that you would want to be focused on things that you would want to be looking out for so I think maybe the first thing to think about is um, knowing the environment that you're going to. Um, and that can be really quick, sort of just in time training, thinking about how do you get as much information about the cultural context, the religious context, the normalities of day to day life in wherever you're going to. Some of that you can research before you go um, in various different ways Um, some of that is certainly from my experiences having really good relationships with um, the people that live that life day in day out the people that you're working with you know national staff in-country teams um, etc etc and you know being in that environment I think one of the biggest things Um, that me and a colleague particularly with the work that we do now are really keen to push to the forefront is a lot of people will commonly think about children and vulnerable children which is absolutely right but anybody on the age spectrum can be vulnerable Um, there are particular things about um, child protection that you clearly want to focus on Um, but that can go for it's the same in the UK that that you know a person can be a vulnerable adult um, and at the other end of uh, sort of lifespan there's things like gender-based violence um, that side of things and again that's traditionally and most commonly thought of as women but it's not always women it's trying trying to keep away from those traditional generalized generic box type thinking um and the other thing for particularly for my for my work in rehabilitation is disability um and and one of the things that i tend to regularly keep in my mind is when you're working thinking about the people that you're not seeing so all of those people so my work is medical and you can be extremely busy from a medical point of view 
but are you seeing one particular pattern of society um and you know there are different ratios you can work on but in a in a in a population of people you're seeing particularly in emergency 30% of those people you're expecting to have a pre-existing disability and if you're not seeing them where are they um so it's 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 things like that to keep in mind so it's a lot of being as familiar as you can with the cultural context it's being very aware of who you're seeing or who you're hearing um and who you're not um and and watching for patterns of um who's presenting to your care and and who's not and why that might be um and those are probably some of the quicker easier tips to think about that's um that's really interesting and that's that's certainly really useful thing to think about um because people with disabilities in in some countries are already vulnerable and disadvantaged because they're stigmatized and you know they're they are um marginalized so in a an emergency crisis situation that is only going to get worse for them um and that's that's really interesting so kind of going back to what you've what you've already said about knowing the country that you're going to uh, being you know as familiar as you can about the culture and the norms of of that country um and it's really poignant actually you know the statistic of uh, you know in 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 a, in a population 30% of people will have some form of disability and if you're not seeing them absolutely where are they um that's that's really interesting yeah i think you know particularly looking at emergency medical stuff that that 30% statistic it's probably changed but it's a good sort of ballpark to keep in the back of your mind so and also bearing in mind that disability isn't necessarily the thing that jumps out that you can see um so uh, we've recently been doing some work on um communication impairment um and you know that will that will be as broad as um if you can't hear a a cyclone siren tsunami siren go off how how do you know or if you're in the middle of a a an emergency setting and all of the information about where to go and seek treatment is written and you can't read how do you access that care and that could be you can't read normally or your language isn't a written language it's just verbal it could be things like um things aren't translated into your dialect um etc etc or you know even pictorial things couldn't might be very um western images and they don't translate to your environment in you know wherever you might be a rohingya refugee camp in bangladesh for example mm, so mm. it's it's those sorts of things and then thinking you know if you try and translate that to sort of covid times and working in different countries um what is your covid testing site what does it look like where is it is it you know um i had a a really good experience with a team um when i was away working in beirut um following the explosion and the during um covid where they didn't have a rehabilitation professional on their team they didn't have anybody with a sort of protection background but we had a bit of a chat um and they came back to a meeting 2 days later and said oh actually what we've done is is changed the PCR testing site because we realized it was up two flights of stairs and it was in a in a basically a one of those shipping containers that had been adapted so they so they moved it and it had a slope up to it and they were like well you know now people in wheelchairs or have challenges walking 
can access PCR testing. Uh, it's just simple things like that. And, you know, that was that was a great result, actually. That's a fantastic result. And like you said, it's, it is so simple that sometimes the, the really simple things and the simple solutions aren't at the forefront of your mind. You're kind of thinking, you know, you know about uh, more complicated uh, things, but actually simple and the basics always work well, don't they, before you can progress to doing more fancy stuff. Um, yeah, that's, that's amazing. And it, it's, it certainly gets you thinking differently um, about, you know, I suppose going from a nice, comfortable, um, wealthy country where life isn't too bad and then, you know, being transported to uh, a developing country, um, you know, the low economic growth um, and the culture is different. And how do you how do you respond to that? You know, you're taking your own your own culture, you're going with your own morals, um, you know, dictated by your country, uh, your culture, and you're going to um, something that is completely different that you're not used to. How how would you advise people to to deal with that, or is it just a you find out when you get there situation? <laughs> um, uh, I think it's probably a bit of both. Um, I think I think it's different if you're if you've got planned trips and you're repeatedly going back to a similar part of the world or you know a, a similar place so I've I certainly had the great fortune to go back to the Kolibu Burns unit in Ghana f over a five-year period and you know some of my um, thoughts and assumptions if I compare them from year one to year five definitely changed um, and that's both you know I had research before I'd gone but that's just learning from people who live in that setting in that society and and getting to understand it a bit more so I think um, if you if you're on a longer term program you just live that sort of learning cycle um, I think it's more difficult if you're hopping from one to another really short term and quite quickly um, I think there are I think if you're going to work consistently in humanitarian settings there are certain certainly areas of the world that you can focus some of your research on so for me I know that there's a high likelihood that I'm going to be going to different parts of Africa uh, the Middle East Southeast Asia so I'll gradually over time just keep reading listening to podcasts sucking up all the free information that there is online um and there's a huge amount available online um if you know where to find it <laughs> <laughs> that's the key <laughs> yeah that if you know where to find it is definitely the key um and i think uh be careful about making assumptions um but also don't tie yourself in knots. You know, it, it, it's going to be um, hopefully a shared learning experience. And there are certain elements from your own culture that can mould with the culture that you're going to, to change things. Um, so, yeah, there, there are definitely tricky things. Um, some of the things... That I've certainly encountered are, you know, the lives of women around the world are hugely varied. Um, so, you know, how do you make sure that certainly healthcare is made the most available for women that can't leave the house without a male guardian? Um, and, it, and it's thinking about how you might adapt your practice um, in those different settings and societies rather than just saying well they just have to they just have to be allowed to leave because you know that is that is their culture and understanding that for for actually a lot of women it would it would be extremely strange and uncomfortable to 
move away from that tradition and that culture and it's something that they value hugely it's not always massively negative for them Mm. Mm. and i yeah we we do these things because we want to help and we have good intentions but sometimes our our good intentions can potentially cause more harm can't they if we're perhaps naive about a situation that we're going into and we're perhaps not prepared to adjust our beliefs and our I, I suppose and not willing to learn about the the place that you're in which w- would be difficult on a short-term mission or deployment wouldn't it um yeah so yeah because we don't know how we are going to react to a a completely different country and culture and potentially we don't know how the people from that country are going to react towards us i suppose it's about having respect for where you're going um and and who you're dealing with perhaps yeah i think it's sort of um respecting your own values there's a lot about understanding and and knowing yourself and and how you will react to some of those things and again a lot of the time you're only really going to test that out and and find that out when you're in those scenarios um likewise it's respecting and acknowledging the culture and the area of the world that you're you're going to and also knowing what your what your red lines are um and how you might deal with um or your organization might deal with some of those red lines um and how and how that process works so you know for example if you came across somebody who um i suppose a a child would be an a more familiar one for people to think about but if you came across a child that you were concerned about and that family uh were it was challenging for you coming from a different culture to address that what is your next port of call or particularly if you're not hugely experienced what do you then do um and under, understanding what your organisations processes are around protection or what the whole coordination system is around protection and how that can work to both help you in a difficult situation and that child and that family that comes back to safeguarding looking at the internal structure of your organization isn't it and also the protection side of that as well that that takes that's both elements there isn't it and it probably tests a lot of people you know in that moment of of what to do and how do you how do you deal with it um and i think perhaps knowing your organization's uh structure of how they deal with that reporting systems um are they robust reporting reporting systems or are they weak reporting systems has an impact doesn't it on on how you deal with that and also debriefing from a situation if you know you have been see if you've seen something particularly challenging or been involved with something particularly horrific horrific in your eyes um yeah how do you how do you deal with that in the aftermath and and post mission as well yeah i I, i'd say yes to all of those (laughs) so i think you know again it's thinking about what can you know before what can you find out before you go so what are your your organization systems and processes who is the lead or the focal point for safeguarding and or protection um, sometimes those roles cross over. Sometimes they're very separate. Um, what is the system and process? If you're going to a, a, a heightened emergency um, on a background of, say, a complex humanitarian setting, there will be coordination processes already in place, particularly if there are known vulnerabilities. If you throw in a a disaster of, you know, say earthquake, for example, if you've got underlying vulnerabilities, as all populations will do, you can be the most 
organised, well-funded, well-structured country in the world, but it will put your systems and the people within it under huge amounts of pressure and stress and vulnerability will rise. Um, so, again, knowing what those coordination structures are and how you interact with them are, are pretty key. And going back to, you know, the, uh, a humanitarian is, is someone who wants to help and, and do no harm. Can we do harm sometimes? It, unwittingly do harm? Yes. Um, <laughs> I think ev everybody would want to say no. But I think, um, you know, I, I, I would say that that everybody's coming from a, a good place you mm. know every all of those interactions are going to be coming from a good place um but i think you're particularly challenged if you're new to international work or mm. you're new to a particular environment if you're used to working in you know one part of the world and you go to an extremely different cultural setting um you know, if you're not used to working with potentially the combination of emergency environment plus internally displaced people, plus or minus an element of conflict, you know, you just add on another layer each time. And you're somebody that, you know, again, if we take the example of people who have a a normal day job be it in the nhs or or whatever in in the uk um and are doing short small missions um and they're not familiar with um the wider setup in that country so organizations be it um, ngos who are there working for long periods of time you can fall into different traps um and it's and it's really difficult it could be something like um you know uh handing out sweets or oranges or or whatever to people who you know are clearly wanting food um does that fit within that structure of sustainable um humanitarian involvement probably not um, if you've got a, an established food program going, yeah. So it's also knowing what other what other what other organisations are, are are doing um, in that area as well, isn't it? Because you have different objectives potentially um, of, of, on what you're on what you're doing. Um, are there any online toolkits that you would recommend or that you know of that would be useful for people to? To look at in terms of safeguarding and protection um, as as a as a starting point. Yeah, I think there's there's huge amounts that are out there free. Um, so a lot of online learning. If you look at certain platforms like um, uh, Kaya and Disaster Ready, um, they have huge amounts of really relevant um, protection and safeguarding training. Um, if you wanted to go a bit more into detail, you could look at the global humanitarian cluster system, particularly on protection. Um, but there's equal value to um, things like there are podcasts out there that, you know, one that I've particularly listened to, the Harvard Humanitarian Initiative, um, they've got some really good resource on their podcast that focus around particularly on safeguarding and protection. Um, and, you know, you'll see them there that they're back from 2018, 2019, but they're a really good introduction into a slightly different world of humanitarian based protection. Um, same can be said for anything on the new new humanitarians podcast. Mm -hmm. um, and their website, to be honest, for learning and reading. I mean, they cover huge, broad scope on humanitarian involvement from, you know, finance and funding to challenging areas. But within that, they cover a lot of um, safeguarding protection side of things. Fantastic. 
so we've we've had a, a bit of an introduction to to safeguarding and protection in the humanitarian setting um and i've certainly learned even more from you zoe um than than um than um than you've already uh, taught me um last year um and it's it's absolutely fascinating and it's certainly um has, has given me other things to, to to consider um when working overseas and it's 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 just been really um fascinating to to talk to you today um do you have uh, any top tips for people in terms of safeguarding and, and protection? Any top tips for people that are just getting into the uh, working overseas um, or are, are considering it? Yeah, I think um, no matter what sort of technical speciality you come from, what background you come from, you know, different aspects of health, um search and rescue you know logistics operations i i don't think this is something that's isolated to one portion of people that are, are working overseas it's everybody's duty and responsibility to have a certain amount of awareness um so that would be the first thing don't don't leave it to somebody else um the main thing I would say is understand the organisation that you're going to be working with and working for, whether it's a week, whether it's five years, uh, whatever the sort, whatever the programme is that you're you're going to be working with and delivering, um, and getting as much information as you can on their safeguarding strategies for both you as a member of staff um, or volunteer your colleagues, and then the people that you're going to be delivering your programme to. Um, that sets you in a really good stand for then if you do come across any tricky circumstances while while you're away or when you're back. And then more from the protection side of things, which I'm hugely passionate about, is... Um, understanding the cultural environment that you're going to be working within not making or trying not to make predetermined decisions um, and being open to listening and learning about what that environment's like but also really refreshing in your mind who you are seeing who you're working with um, and who's missing and that's probably one of the one of the biggest things is whether it's a short mission, whether it's a longer term deployment, you're going to be very busy and you're often going to be really tired um, and you can get into a bit of a pattern of just doing the next thing and the next thing and the next thing um, and just taking a few moments to think about, okay, who is it we're interacting with? Are we missing a portion of society? Um, and, and then thinking pretty broadly but not trying to make things too complicated about if there are people missing how do you make things more accessible to them um, how do you create a space where somebody who is vulnerable can talk to you about something um, or how do you even get them to be able to interact with whatever it is you're delivering so I think those are the, they sound like big topics, but I think something you said earlier, Deb, was not trying to make it too complicated, mm. um, particularly if this is something that's not your technical background. It's, you know, understand your processes, keep it super simple, keep an open mind and just keep learning and adapting. Fantastic um, and a great take-home message um, from this this podcast today. Um, before we wrap up, Zoe Clift, um, I'd like to know three things from you. Um, firstly, what was the last book you read? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, oh God, it's okay it... if it was the Train Spotters Almanac. We won't judge you. This is a safe <laughs> space. You can tell us anything. Um, well, it it was not the Train Spotters Elm. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
it is it is however very topical actually it's uh it's a little life um and yeah there are there are huge amounts of um protection elements in that book uh i would recommend the read it's one of the most amazing books i've ever read uh but you need to be pretty stoic okay <laughs> good to know and that's called a little life a little life yeah fantastic um and name one of your favorite travel destinations I can give you a holiday one and yeah, uh, go for work, it. Go on. working working one. Um, uh, so Costa Rica, I love Costa Rica mm -hmm. as a as a as a travel holiday destination. Um, it's just the most beautiful place and amazing animal life, flora fauna, the rest of it, and a, a really good ethos on um, sustainability. Actually, okay. Um, and from a working environment, um, I love working in the Middle East. I, okay. I, I find the, the culture, the people mm. um, fascinating, mm. hugely varied, and I learn masses every time I go, both about mm -hmm. myself, about the different countries, um, and I think it's, uh, yeah, a fascinating part of the world. Yeah, I, I think the Middle East is fascinating as well, actually. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that. Um, and finally, name one of your top 10 movies. Well, my work colleagues would absolutely laugh at this because I'm, I'm notorious for my absolute lack of film knowledge or watching. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm wishing they were here now to be able to tell me. Um, what well, to tell you what your favourite movie is? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I can hear them now laughing at me. <laughs> favourite movie? Or oh, in like a top ten, it doesn't have to be the favourite because my favourite movies change as the wind changes, so... Mm. Well, I'm going to go. One of my favourites to watch on a plane is um, Goodfellas. Is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it doesn't fit the the uh, the, the context of this podcast at no, all. No, it doesn't. Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, for for on a plane travel, yeah, that ah, Goodfellas is is quite a good, good one movie. To watch. Mm. Yeah, it's a good movie. It's a movie I've seen more than once, so it must be good. Yeah. Fantastic. Uh, well, Zoe, thank you so much for uh, an informative um, talk uh, on the on the WEM podcast today. Um, it's been really interesting and um, we can add any links to uh, any recommendations um, in the uh, in the notes to, to the to the podcast. Um, Zoe, thank you very much. Thank you.